Micah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, Remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who refuse the lie that one life is worth more than any other, for theirs is the future of humanity. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who have stared long into the abyss, for theirs is honesty beyond grief. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who resist retaliation, for the earth will never be won by force. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who would rather die for truth than live with compromise, for truth will outlive all lies. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are those who forgive the unforgivable, for they have seen the darkness of their own souls. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those who know themselves truly, for they have seen themselves as God sees them. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are provocatively non-violent, for they are following the path of the Son of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who choose to receive violence but not to give it, for the future is born out of such choices. 
Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when you stand up for truth and hell itself decides to try and destroy you. You're not the first and you won't be the last. I'm telling you now, nothing makes any sense unless you learn to see it differently and then choose to live that alternative into being. In Monty Python's memorable take on the Sermon on the Mount in the film The Life of Brian, we get to see the response to Jesus' preaching by those stood at the back of the crowd, barely able to hear the preacher on the hilltop in the distance and misunderstanding his words to great comic effect. If you haven't seen it for a while, or even at all, your homework this week is to go and watch it, with my permission. It does carry a rude word warning, but we're, you know, we're all adults. The exchange includes... Everything from blessings on cheesemakers rather than peacemakers to the discovery that it is, in fact, the meek and not the Greek who shall inherit the earth, which, as Mrs. Big Nose puts it, is, well, that's nice, isn't it? Because the meek have a hell of a time. After a brief fight, the characters agree to head off to catch a stoning. And as they leave, one of the Jewish revolutionaries is heard to mutter, well, blessed is just about everyone with a vested interest in the status quo, as far as I can tell. To which his friend replies, yeah, well, what Jesus blatantly fails to appreciate is that it's the meek who are the problem. And I suspect it was ever thus, that those at the back of the crowd are ideologically as well as geographically distant from the voices at the centre. Of course, what the Python team have intuitively picked up on in their version of the Sermon on the Mount is something that we see throughout Matthew's Gospel, which is that some people, just a few, get the truth of the message that Jesus is proclaiming, whereas others, the majority, are distant from him and react badly to what it is that they think they have heard. This is almost certainly a reflection of the situation facing the community that Matthew was writing for, some 50 years or so after the time of Jesus, where those in the small, struggling congregations of Jesus' followers were finding that most of those with whom they were trying to share the good news of their faith were disinterested at best and more often than not actively hostile to the challenge that the message of Jesus brought to their world and worldview. And so Matthew gives his readers the Sermon on the Mount with its memorable opening lines, now known as the Beatitudes, to succinctly capture the force and the energy of the preacher on the hilltop whose voice continued to echo down the decades to their own time, offering comfort and challenge in equal measure to any who would dare to take the time to listen. And it has ever been thus. Radical Jesus following has always been a minority sport. 
And I would suggest that those times where Christianity has done a deal with power to get its message heard more widely have always resulted in a dilution of the message away from its radical core. In any form of Christendom, from Constantine to the European situation in the Middle Ages and onwards, to, dare I say, the deal that certain strands of powerful evangelicalism are currently striking with the powers that be on the other side of the Atlantic. In any form of Christendom, the Beatitudes become a blessing on just about anyone with a vested interest in the status quo. And the heart of it gets lost once again. And the problem is as real for us today as it was for Matthew's community in the first century. The Beatitudes of Jesus are all too easily reduced to the platitudes of Jesus as statements of revolutionary challenge become aphorisms of anodyne comfort. Did anyone else notice the Bible reading at Donald Trump's inauguration? Reverend Samuel Rodriguez, an evangelical Latino who has on occasions been critical of Donald Trump, came to the podium and simply read the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. It seems to me to be almost beyond irony that the inaugural speech of Jesus' ministry should be set in such stark contrast with the inaugural presidential speech that followed it. I really hope Samuel Rodriguez knew exactly what he was doing. But I suspect many of those listening, many of those who see in their new president a voice for their pro-life, religiously conservative agendas, absolutely failed to appreciate any irony that may have been there. The radical, revolutionary message of Jesus is all too easily domesticated to powerful agendas, and we need to take care to hear it afresh, lest we too miss the demands it makes on us and on our own lives. And what does this blessed word, blessed, mean anyway? I mean, it's all very well asserting that the meek and the mourning are blessed, but one has to wonder what earthly use that is to the person crippled by grief or too timid to speak out or up. It's tempting here to parody the words of Prime Minister May and simply assert that, well, blessed means blessed, and that's the end of it but that doesn't strike me as a satisfactory response to any question. So in an attempt to get to the heart of the Beatitudes, I thought I'd have a go at re-rendering them. I want to make it clear that I am not here seeking to rewrite the words of Scripture. Rather, I'm offering a reflection on the words of Jesus that Matthew gives us to help us engage with them in fresh ways. So here they are again. Blessed are those who refuse the lie that one life is worth more than any other, for theirs is the future of humanity. Blessed are those who have stared long into the abyss, for theirs is honesty beyond grief. Blessed are those who resist retaliation, for the earth will never be won by force. 
Blessed are those who would rather die for truth than live with compromise, for truth will outlive all lies. Blessed are those who forgive the unforgivable, for they've seen the darkness of their own souls. Blessed are those who know themselves truly, for they have seen themselves as God sees them. Blessed are those who are provocatively non-violent, for they're following the path of the Son of God. Blessed are those who choose to receive violence but not to give it, for the future is born out of such choices. Blessed are you when you stand up for truth and hell itself decides to try and destroy you. You're not the first and you won't be the last. I'm telling you now, nothing makes any sense unless you learn to see it differently and then choose to live that alternative into being. So firstly, I wonder, what does it mean to be blessed? It's not a word that we use a lot, really, is it? At least not in its archaic form of two syllables with an accent over the second E, blessed. It has resonances of Shakespeare and the King James Bible. And its modern pronunciation of blessed has lost much of its depth of meaning in contemporary usage, often reduced to a a vague assertion of feeling fortunate, as in, I'm blessed to have you as a friend. Its further popular rendering of just bless has robbed it of almost all meaning, becoming little more than a patronising response to someone who has tried but failed to achieve anything worthwhile, as in, look at that drawing she's done, bless. (laughs) Anyway, I wonder if we can find a way to bring it back to relevance, to rediscover the force of what Jesus was doing when he proclaimed a blessing on the meek, the mourning, and the merciful. In the Jewish context of the first century, one of the great theological debates was that of who was worthy to receive the blessing of God. The Jews held that they were God's chosen people, called from among the nations, and blessed uniquely by God with the gift of a special relationship with him. Special relationship, where have I heard that before? But within this general calling and blessing, there was a further level of disparity between those who were regarded as blessed and those who were not. And there was much discussion as to what God's blessing looked like. If you think that the prosperity gospel of health and wealth is a new phenomenon and unique to Christianity, then think again, because the ancient Jews got there first. There was a school of thought in the first century that held that if you were obedient to the covenant, you would experience the blessings of God as a reward for your faithfulness. These blessings might be financial or related to health or to family life, you know, having lots of children, that kind of thing. It's not quite touch the screen and you're going to be healed, but it comes from a similar place in terms of seeing God's blessings as linked to human obedience and human expressions of sacrifice. Jesus wasn't the first to challenge this idea. And for example, the book of Job is an extended piece of theological reflection on why bad things happen to good people. 
questioning where God is in the face of human suffering. These are not new questions. Sometimes I talk to people who are not Christian and they say to me, well, I couldn't be a religious person because how do you explain the existence of God in the face of human suffering? I want to say, well, go and read the Bible. That's basically what it's about. The prophet Micah, who we heard from in our first reading this morning, also questions the nature of the sacrifice that God might require in order for his blessings to be dispensed. Micah said, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And the answer he hears to this question is radical. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And it is this tradition of Micah and Job that Jesus started to proclaim on those whom others would despise, a blessing that ran counter to the way that the ancient Jews saw it. Many voices told people that their vulnerability was a curse. Jesus, however, says that it is a blessing. And so, blessed are those who refuse the lie that one life is worth more than any other, for theirs is the future of humanity. This really is the great lie. It is the great deceit of Satan. Because the moment any one of us (coughs) starts to believe that one life is more precious to God than any other, then the door is opened for all manner of evil to take root and flourish. Against this, the radical message that Jesus proclaimed was that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those with a poverty of spirit, to those with an uninflated view of their own self-importance, to those who know that any value they have in life comes from God and not from any achievement or status that they may hold. But so many of the messages in our society fly in the face of true poverty of spirit. From the advertiser's mantra that you're worth it, to fevered assertions of America or indeed any nation first, and the nationalistic protectionism that comes from a mindset of my country right or wrong. Friends, we need to recover a godly sense of our own value and to discover in that the value of those others whom we could so otherwise easily diminish. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are those who have stared long into the abyss, for theirs is honesty beyond grief. Bereavement can sap all hope. But there is hope here that those who have learned to live with great loss may discover through their grief the brutal honesty of human mortality in ways that others of us will never grasp. 
the comfort for those who mourn is not won easily or quickly, and it comes through pain and tears. But in a world which despises weakness and which denies the transience of life, the ability to outstare death is a blessing known only to some, and yet it is a great gift that they bring to humanity. We each of us, in our own way, one day will look death in the face, and on that day we will need those who have seen that face before and who have learned to live with its reality. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are those who resist retaliation, for the earth will never be won by force. We can build walls and missiles to our heart's content, securing our borders with mutually assured destruction and with ever more stringent restrictions on movement. We can make our pacts and alliances and stand in solidarity with countries of like mind. We can love NATO or hate it, but, says Jesus, the earth does not belong to those with guns or missiles It belongs to the meek. It belongs to those who resist retaliation, to those who will commit themselves to alternatives, to the spiralling violence that generates strike after counter-strike. The future belongs to those who will build bridges and not walls, to those who will turn swords into plowshares and guns into statues. And if you haven't seen our statue made of guns, take a look in the side chapel afterwards. We will need creativity and courage if we are to stand against the prevailing mindset of retaliation. But it is a fight that is worth the effort because all other paths lead to death. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are those who would rather die for truth than live with compromise, for the truth will outlive all lies. We live in a world of fake news and alternative facts. We live, apparently, in a post-truth world where the lie wins the argument if it's said loud enough and often enough and gaslighting is the order of the day. From crooked Hillary to £350 million a week extra to the NHS, we are constantly invited and cajoled to abandon truth and follow the herd. And yet, where in this is righteousness? Where in this is truth? The answer, to quote the X-Files, is that the truth is out there. We just need to seek it out and then speak it out. But this is not easy. It is hard, thirsty work seeking the springs of righteousness. And we must not abandon the quest and we must resist compromise. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are those who forgive the unforgivable, for they have seen the darkness of their own souls. I mourned the passing recently of Jill Sayward. You may remember her. She was a victim in the Ealing Vicarage rape attack. I heard her speak once at Greenbelt, and the courage with which she faced the crime which had been done to her, and her willingness to speak language 
of forgiveness as a path to wholeness had a profound effect on me. And in my pastoral work, I speak sometimes with those who have been greatly wronged, victims of abuse of all kinds. And I have never found it appropriate to tell anyone that they must forgive their abuser. But when someone comes to the conclusion that the path from victimhood lies through the dark valley of forgiveness, and when they realise that despite the wrong done to them, they do share common humanity with those who do wrong to others, something profound shifts, and a moment of blessing can emerge. But when we think of this on a global scale, when we bring to mind the terrorist atrocities of all the years, from ISIS to the IRA and beyond, and when we see the historical scars of unforgiveness written across whole societies and nations, we can begin to see why mercy is a blessing which cuts both ways. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are those who know themselves truly, for they have seen themselves as God sees them. In my sermon a couple of weeks ago, I made reference to the quote from Socrates that an unexamined life is not worth living. And I find myself wondering more and more whether the journey of discipleship in Christ is primarily a journey into the love of God, which takes shape in our lives as we learn to see ourselves not as we want to be seen and not as others see us, but as God sees us. The challenge here is that God sees us with the unflinching gaze of love. And we so resist the idea of being loved. We live with such suppressed guilt, such internalised self-hatred, that the idea of being loved, of being truly forgiven and accepted, is as alien to us as our long-lost childhoods. And yet, and yet God loves us and forgives us. And when we learn to see ourselves as God sees us, we discover purity in place of pain. And we find the face of God in the midst of our complex existence. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are those who are provocatively non-violent, for they're following the path of the Son of God. The path of peacemaking is not supposed to be straightforward. It's never just a passive pacifism that lies down and dies when confronted with violent opposition. Christ-like non-violence is something far more creative, something far more subversive than this. Jim Gordon, a friend of this church and former principal of Scottish Baptist College, wrote this week that the followers of the crucified Lord have a long tradition of resistance through revolutionary love, bridge-building hope, perseverance in peace, joy in trumping injustice. The use of the word trump there from his part was very deliberate. And those of us who are watching with concern as sabre-rattling escalates on the international stage will need to be provocatively non-violent if we are to speak out a different, more Christ-like narrative for people to learn to live by. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are those who choose to receive violence but not to give it, for the future is born out of such choices. And some will face persecution because they will not compromise on what they know to be right. 
Just before Christmas, we had an event here at Bloomsbury with Morazan Beg speaking out about his time as a detainee in Guantanamo Bay, eventually released without charge. The temptation to turn an experience of persecution into a quest for vengeance is ever before those who have been wronged. And those who make the choice to receive but not to give out find themselves walking the path of the cross and setting a new direction for those who follow. And so the challenge continues. Blessed are you when you stand up for truth and hell itself destroys to try and destroy you. You're not the first and you won't be the last. I think that too often Christians have their earth-heaven trajectory the wrong way round. The dawning of the kingdom of heaven is not about us going to heaven. It's about heaven coming to us. As Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you get it? Can you see it? Most can't and won't, and that's the truth of it. But those of us who can, those of us who are close enough to the one at the centre to hear his voice and heed his words, we get it, we get the kingdom. And we must then live that kingdom into being. We must live as if it were true until it is true. I'm telling you now, nothing makes any sense unless you learn to see it differently and then choose to live that alternative into being.